Hello and welcome back to JumboCast, the podcast. This is your host, Jarrett Davis. Happy as always to be bringing you the inside scoop on all things sports, on the hill and off. In this week's installment, we'll be covering the NBA, all things soccer, the NHL, and a quick guest segment on top of that. So let's get right into it with a very first guest, a key cog in the machine that is the Tufts field hockey team. Claire, happy to have you with us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, So given the current landscape, things have changed quite a bit for athletes. Could you give us a look into the things that have been affected and maybe some that have not? Yeah, so right now um, we're practicing three times a week, um, obviously with a bunch of restrictions. So we wear masks during practice. Um, We have to split up in groups of 10. So we'll usually warm up um, in those smaller groups um, and then half of the team will go on one side of the field and the other half will go on the other side. We are only allowed to do skills, so we can't do any drills or competition against each other um, just because it's a contact sport. It's not that much contact, but um, so we're just not, we're not allowed to play any competitive games, um, but that might be subject to change soon. So hopefully we'll get to do some drills um, where we get to have some defense and offense. That would be great. But yeah, we're not doing any games, obviously. Um, Normally, we would be about halfway through our season right now, um, and this would be kind of like a really important time. I would say October is a big month um, because it kind of like is where you determine whether you're going to have a good standing for the NESCAC tournament and NCAAs. But yeah, so we're really just doing training right now, um, mostly skills um, and just perfecting some of that stuff. Um, we're doing the best we can with what we can do. Um, and so I've been really proud of like how our teams handle it. Awesome. Awesome. So after somewhat of a disappointing finish to the season last year, I know you must be itching to get back out there. What do you do to stay motivated? Yeah, it's it's weird right now because there's no game. So it's kind of, it's, it's a, it sets the tone when you have a game, you really like you're extremely motivated at practice because you know that there's going to be some sort of competition or measure of um, how hard you've been working. So we've definitely have to, had to adjust our mindsets. And I would just say like, yeah, obviously we had some unfinished business from last year and it's going to be hard to determine when we're going to be able to get back out there and um, kind of have a normal season. So I think it's just like having the mindset that everything you're doing now is going to pay off later. Um in terms of skills, that's easy to see just because the more that you practice, the better you are. Um, fitness is kind of a different thing because you want to have your peak fitness um, when you start season. So right now I'd say we're doing more fitness maintenance. Um, but then hopefully if we have a normal season next year, um, we can, um, you know, get back in peak shape over the summer. But yeah, I would just say like, keeping the mindset that like everything we're doing now is going to pay off later and make us a better team. And then also just remembering why we're there because we love the game. And even if there isn't a game to like compete in, we go to practice every day because we love it and it's fun. So um, I think those two things are definitely a way that I personally have adjusted my mindset and the team as well. Very nice. Very nice. So Third on the team in goals last year and fourth in points. You definitely have a handle on things. For those young hockey field hockey fans, what advice would you give them in their continued pursuits? Yeah, I would just say, again, I would just say, um, like, remember why you play. Um, I think everyone on our team definitely loves the sport and is really into it. So I think 
if you're wanting to play in college, I would just remember that like field hockey is supposed to be fun. Um, our coach always says like practice should be your favorite two hours of the day. Um, and I would definitely think that our team um, really believes in that. Um, so yeah, I would just say keep working hard on the things that you can control. Two things you can control are what we're doing right now, skills and fitness. Um, you don't really need much to do that. You don't need anyone else. All you need is yourself. Um, and then also just remembering like why you want to play in college or why you want to keep playing um, is because you love it. So, yeah. Well, that was awesome, Claire. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy gal, so I will let you get going. Really appreciate you having here on the show and taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Now I'd like to welcome the indefatigable Max Goldfarb. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, Jared? Thanks for having me. Most definitely. As most puck proponents know, the Tampa Bay Lightning hoisted Lord Stanley's Cup on Monday night. Are you surprised they finally got the job done after a string of deep runs in the playoffs? No, not at all. And honestly, it goes exactly to your point, Jared, about, about the fact that um, for the past um, seven years, they've made the playoffs six times, including um, a cup appearance back in 15 when they lost in, in six games to the Hawks. And, and in that time, as well, they, they made two conference final appearances. So, and I, I think we've kind of seen this trend over the past, you know, couple of years um, with, the, with the finalists in the Stanley Cup that uh, it's teams that really have had a good amount of playoff experience. And we think back to last year's Cup. I mean, the Blues have been sort of a, a mainstay in the playoffs, granted having mostly early exits. Um, and the Bruins, obviously, having won the Cup in, in 11 and, and honestly largely keeping that core um, they were able to, you know, turn in a similar effort last year. Um, but yeah, returning to the Lightning case, I mean, they, you know, have kind of been uh, in this in this stretch of of great um, of great play over the past, you know, like I said, seven years, all under the tutelage of John Cooper, their head coach. So they've really, you know, had a chance to grow under him during this time. And and I think, you know, kind of focusing in on um, their their path to the final this year. I mean there was sort of a common theme of playing very strong, sturdy defensive teams. So taking it back all the way to the first round, and I don't mean the, I don't mean the, the, the bubble first round with the, uh, with the plan round. I mean, after, after the blue jackets advanced, they, uh, they played them in the, in the first round and beat them in five games. Um, and it was kind of a, it was kind of a redemption uh, opportunity for the lightning. They capitalized on after the lightning had won the president's trophy for uh, the league's best record um, with one of the highest winning percentages since, uh, since the trophy's inception back in 85, 86. So the lightning were cruising last year and then ended up getting upset by the jacket. So it was nice seeing for them that they were able to, uh, you know, dominate them in that first round. And then after the blue jackets, they played the, uh, like I mentioned, the Stanley cup finalist Boston Bruins in the second round and, and handled them in five as well. Uh, and then in the conference final, they played um, a bit of an upstart team, the New York Islanders, and uh, defeated them in six games. Um, so uh, for me, what I saw, you know, after after those string of uh, series wins leading them to the final, I thought, you know, they would do a good job of handling a more more offensive team like the Stars. I think, you know, the Lightning's strengths definitely lie more on the offensive side, but certainly they can hold their own in the defense. So. Um, it ended up being a bit of a, a shootout series, you know, a lot of high scoring games minus, you know, the last one that ended two nothing. But um, but regardless, um, you know, going back to your question, I think, 
you know, to me and, and probably a lot in the in the hockey community it was not a not a surprise at all that the Lightning took care of business and uh, got this this long coveted cup after a 16 year, I believe, uh, um, hiatus. Yes, yes, I do agree. The Lightning were kind of poised to get one, and glad they could do it this year. Continuing along that last question, how do you think a team like the Lightning benefited from the bubble format, and maybe which teams experienced detrimental effects? Sure. So um, I think, you know, kind of going back to the biggest theme of this, you know, of the last question, talking about experience, I think it really helped. I mean, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we we heard from uh, from some players in the NBA, at least in their bubble, that um, the uh, the lack of distractions, just generally the different format kind of, um, I think, hurt some of their morale. But I think, you know, going back to the Lightning, um, I think that with their experience, they and the, and the veteran leadership that they had, and, and Captain Steven Stamkos, Victor Hedman, Kevin Shattenkirk, they kind of knew that they needed to get the that they knew they need, they needed to get the job done, you know. Um, and after so many years of having gotten that far, um, I think it added sort of this element of urgency that helped them overcome uh, any uh, any sort of um, I don't know negative feelings that they might have had being away from family. Um, and and I think that you know particularly with their uh, with their arrangement of having played as one of the top four seeds in the Eastern Conference in the in the round robin play, sort of a low pressure just kind of seeding uh, format before the actual playoffs start. I think it was good because you know it got them to play sort of loosely. They knew there weren't uh, that high of stakes uh, in that in that format, and they also were able to get up to speed. Playing, uh, you know, the best teams in, in their conference, the uh, you know the Bruins, the uh, Capitals, and also the, the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, and yet uh, I guess touching on teams that might have been hurt by the bubble, I think younger teams with less experience probably face some difficulty. I guess thinking to uh, you know, for example, the the New York Rangers, obviously they weren't a very highly touted team to go deep in the playoffs, but. Um, I think I think relying on young stars like Capo Caco, goalie um, Shosturkin, who actually came in to replace Henrik Lundqvist after being the better tender, you know, kind of I don't know, I guess shine through some of the uh, so, some of the sort of bumps in the road that a team like that faces when they don't really know what it takes in the playoffs, and also have to get used to playing in an entirely different environment. You know, their their lifestyle was completely flipped upside down, so. Definitely made it, uh, you know, difficult to really lock in probably at times into the actual, um, you know, play of hockey. Definitely. Um, along those lines, I actually have my own little theory about this. As we've seen, a lot of the Southern California teams, uh, Tampa Bay, South Florida teams, they're doing really well in these bubble formats. Do you think that um, living in a situation where there's a lot of distractions and they have to have that mindset to say, hey, we, we put ourselves in a virtual bubble during the season with all the distractions around us. They're more prepared for this, and maybe that's why teams like Tampa Bay, the Dodgers, uh, the, the Lightning, these type of teams are doing well in the Miami Heat as well. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I do, Yeah, I do think it, you know, maybe to some extent uh, kind of plays off that lifestyle question, right, of like needing to – you know, kind of lock it in, as they say, and uh, and avoid getting distracted by what's around them. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously the the script didn't exactly hold for Arizona Coyotes after getting knocked out 
uh, in the playing round. Obviously, they weren't, you know, as, as touted as the Lightning. Yeah, I mean, look, it'd be interesting to see if either the leagues, either the NBA or NHL, um, continue in a in a quasi or maybe full bubble format uh, next season to see if you know, as as all the teams are lumped together uh, in regular season play, if that if that theory uh, of yours kind of holds up. Yes, yes, I would be interested to see what happens. Let's go look at Victor Hedman, though. One of the best defensemen in his prime during this uh, during this year, during the season. He has 10-plus goals, 35-plus helpers in each of the last five years. He was awarded the Conn Smythe Trophy. Do you think the anybody else was also deserving? Yeah, so I, a couple of names stand out to me. So one is one is Braden Point, who is the uh, leading goal scorer of the Lightning with 14 tallies uh, during the playoffs. Um, and not only did he score these 14 goals, but you know some of them were very timely. So he scored ultimately what was the series-winning goal in Game Seven, uh, the first goal in their in their shutout two nothing win. And then a game that I actually got to watch a little bit of, um, saw one of his goals was in Game Five. Um, he scored the first two goals of the game um, for the Lightning to tie the game up for them after being down to nothing. And, and ultimately, um, it was a back and forth game after that, that the Lightning ended up uh, winning in overtime to put them up 3-1 in the series. So I think, uh, you know, obviously it, it can't go undervalued, um, you know, having a having a timely goal scorer like point on your team. I think he was kind of, um, you know, it's kind of been seen as, you know, second, third fiddle to um, Kucherov, Hedman, uh, even Andre Palat to a certain extent, but certainly made his presence felt um, in, you know, in big ways, lighting up the lamp uh, continuously throughout these playoffs. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I just mentioned him, I think Nikita Kucherov, it goes without saying that he, uh, you know, is an important player to the Lightning and, and showed in the playoffs um, after uh, being their leading point getter with 34 points. You know, I think for him, his uh, his play definitely allows him to lead by example. I mean, he's been an incredible mainstay for the Lightning. I mean, routinely putting up north of 90 points, um, you know, ranking top five in the league um, over the past three, four seasons. So, yeah, I mean, it's we, Jerry, you and I actually had an interesting conversation uh, last night about about Hedman's uh, winning of the award. And, uh, and I was doing a little research and, and that in like six of the past seven seasons before Hedden won the award, a, a forward had actually won the Conn Smythe. Um, and, and the only exception was Duncan Keith back, you know, when they beat the Lightning, believe it or not, in 14-15. So, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think it's great, obviously, that that Victor Hedman gets the recognition. I mean, there is no disputing that he is one of the most valued defensemen in the league. Not only does he provide that consistent offensive output like you were uh like you were saying jared but he also i mean it's just an incredibly big body um down uh you know down at the defensive side of the uh play and um and yeah i think um i think you know the lightning as i mentioned at the outset um pretty much are always in it pretty consistent goal scoring but it's uh you know it was his play and leadership on the back end that you know led to what we saw in game seven a shutout uh, and ultimately a Stanley Cup victory for these uh, for these deserving Lightning. Definitely, definitely. I'm going to qualify your five out of six, though. You're talking Patrick Kane, Justin Williams, Sidney Crosby, Alexander Ovechkin. Those are those are players who, uh, you know, they, they're they the cream of the crop. And Justin Williams in that overtime win, it was, it was really exciting. So, you know, I, I am making that claim that um, Conn Smythe does kind of get set when, the, when it's kind of a, a – 
um, a scripted series, the guy who plays the most on the ice sometimes is just kind of kind of in that role. But I do get what you're saying. We can debate it a little bit more, but we're going to move on. And um, with the star-studded lineup like the Lightning, some of the role players go unnoticed. What were these uh, key moves that put the Lightning over the top this year? And what moves do you predict they will do to make another run next year? Sure. Yeah. So I think you, you hit on the head. I think it was kind of more of the uh, the under the radar guys who ended up stepping up in big ways to help out the Lightning. Uh, and one kind of hits home for me because he used to play for my New Jersey Devils is, is Blake Coleman. He was acquired by the Lightning at the deadline. And if I can recall, they, they I think they gave up you know a pretty high pick. It was either a, a third or second, I believe. So to many outside of, you know, Devil's Lightning Circles, um, they probably thought, hmm, who's this guy? He doesn't really seem to be that flashy for a team that, you know, gave up a decent amount of capital for him. But he, you know, ended up being an incredibly huge player for them. I mean, from what I can recall from my time seeing him in person, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a high-energy, spark, spark plug type player that I think uh, provided an edge to the Lightning that um, – is incredibly incredibly valuable for any team in the playoffs, and certainly was key to them too. Incredibly team first player, you know, and finished the playoffs with um, five goals, eight assists for thirteen points. So, really, not a bad output at all for a uh, second, third line guy. And then the other the other addition that the Lightning made this was over last off season was free agent Kevin Shattenkirk, a guy who. I think unfairly could be labeled a journeyman uh, considering how many teams he's played for. I guess he sort of followed the script of going to the highest bidder. So fortunately the lightning had the space to the cap space to add him and and ended up being a top D pair uh, with Victor Hedman uh, throughout the whole season and, and through the playoffs. And he himself finished with 13 points as well with three goals and 10 assists. And certainly, you know, Top top rank defensemen do not come by all that often. So it was it was absolutely crucial that the Lightning were able to to add him to their unit and really bolster bolster their core in the back end. And going to your question on my roster move predictions to the Lightning, I'll be a little bit lame and conservative and say that the Lightning really cap strapped. I think they have somewhere around eight million dollars in cap space, which might sound like a lot to any casual person in the world, but but in reality, with uh, top ranking players commanding that much for a single season, uh, it's a, it's pretty practical to think that the Lightning are really going to be able to add that much with the way their cap situation currently stands, especially with the two players that I'm going to mention that I believe that they should move, considering they both are restricted free agents and could command heavy pay raises. So the first player I'll mention is prolific young center Anthony Sorelli. Honestly, I hadn't heard much about him before these playoffs, but he really stood out in a big way. And and I'll say that during the regular season, uh, he really had a breakout campaign with 44 points um, in uh, in 68 games. So incredibly underrated, really, um, like I said, had that breakout season. And the other restricted free agent I'll mention, a guy that was actually moved to the Lightning two, three years ago in the Jonathan Druran trade, a guy that the Lightning and drafted who kind of underperformed, is Mikhail Sergachev, the 22-year-old defenseman from Mother Russia. He, you know, had pretty similar point production to uh, Victor Hedman himself, 34 points, 70 games. And considering, like I was saying before, that 
top ranked top four defensemen are real hot commodities in the league. I think that the Lightning would have to fork up a lot of money to be able to afford Sergachev. They might be willing to just because of how valuable uh, that kind of player is to a team, especially a team that's trying to repeat. But I believe that you know even if the Lightning are willing to offer him a lot of money, uh, there could very well be a team like my Devils, for example, that has that has a lot of cap space and is willing to match an offer sheet uh, or willing to put up an offer sheet. Excuse me for for Sergachev, as in you know, propose a contract that the Lightning would have to match in terms of salary uh, in order for them to keep him. Um, so, yeah, those are those are my predictions. I mean, look, there are probably countless of value grabs out there that the Lightning could bring on for, you know, a million or two dollars on like a one or two year deal. But I don't think any of those moves, especially for how deep the Lightning team is right now, are really going to uh, put them in a much better position for for another run of the cup. Definitely. All right. Uh, last question. Give me your crystal ball prediction for the cup next year. Who you got? Love it, Jared. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with two teams that that made their presence felt uh, during uh, during these playoffs. The New York Islanders out of the Eastern Conference and the Vegas Golden Knights. So I guess touching on the Islanders first, we really saw incredible strides out of them in year 200, Barry Trotz, a coach himself who led the Capitals to the Stanley Cup final and ultimately won in in 2017-18 that they shockingly did not retain. Um, So the Islanders with Lou Lamarillo at the helm as GM took him on as their coach and they've been great since. So I think that uh, that the Islanders will continue to grow under him make even more strides, hopefully getting propelled from their Eastern Conference final appearance this year to the Stanley Cup final next year. And yeah, I guess touching on their run this year, I think they really surprised many um, in making Eastern Conference final. And, and ultimately, they took the Lightning to six games, something that you know the Stars couldn't even best. So I think that it shows a lot of promise out of what they're capable of. And, and I believe that you know, as as they kind of have a bit of a complicated goalie situation uh, with a couple, um, you know, with a couple of goalies that kind of rotate in and out, I think that uh, perhaps they can get a little more clarity next season on who really is the best guy and, and kind of run with him. Um, and I think that most promisingly of all, uh, to me, their young talent really really stood out this year uh, in sort of a, in, in a breakout way. Between Matt Barzell and Anthony Beauvillier, uh, both just 22, they each put up north of, uh, of 40 points this season in a shortened season and, and definitely uh, were very effective in the playoffs as well. So I think that, you know, a team that has obviously now deep playoff experience that is only going to get more and more opportunities to build up some chemistry more familiarized and, and comfortable in the Barry Trotz system, they, uh, they're definitely set up for a lot of success next year. And, and touching on Vegas, um, I think it's not, uh, it's not the boldest pick to choose them to make the final after they made uh, the Stanley Cup final in their first year of existence back in 17-18 uh, and, and have made the playoffs in all three years overall. I think that, you know, I, I personally was a little bit surprised that they – Ended up, you know, not not making a deeper run this year. I believe losing in the second round. Uh, they ultimately were the first seed uh, coming out of the round robin uh, portion of the uh, of the sort of pre first round action. 
And, and yeah, so I guess as far as touching on the team, I mean, I think that Marc-Andre Fleury, their goalie, is a little bit left in the tank. I mean, um, we'll have to see whether uh, the Knights will re-sign unrestricted free agent Robin Lehner, who ended up uh, taking the bulk of the share uh, of, of the goaltending action in the playoffs. But hopefully they'll be able to, you know, like I said, with the Islanders, kind of get some clarity on their goalie situation and, and run with the guy who's, uh, who seems to be playing better. And uh, from what I can tell uh, on their on the contract situations of their players, it doesn't seem like they'll be losing a lot of pieces over the offseason. And and they, you know, as if, as they've been sort of lauded for, they have a really really deep core. And and I believe will uh, will yeah just kind of continue growing together as a team and uh, hopefully take another stab at uh, making the final and hopefully winning this time. But thank you for uh, giving me the floor, Jared. I'll always love you know, talking some hockey and, and stay tuned, everyone. We got the, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to talk about it. We got the NHL draft next week uh, where Alexi Lafreniere is supposed to be a generational talent, likely going to the my hated New York Rangers uh, first overall. So should be exciting. Looking forward to uh, what's going to be an interesting, albeit shortened off season. Yeah, love talking hockey with you, Max. Hopefully we can get to a game together soon. Great stuff as always. Thank you. Thank you. Good thing. Take it easy, Jared. Now let's switch gears to the NBA. Game two is tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. The Lakers started out slowly in game one, but eventually cruised to a big victory. Uh, some of the key Heat players are banged up and won't go tonight. We're bringing in Jenny Liu to talk about her thoughts on the series and what she thinks will happen tonight. Hi, Jared. Thanks for having me back here. Of course, so happy to have you. Um, what do you think is going to happen in game two tonight. We see that a lot of those big players are banged up. Um, Lakers had a really good start to that. Uh, they had a slow start to the first game, but they came back strong. Um, what, do you, what do you think about game two? Yeah, for sure. So obviously Bam's status will be crucial for the game. And I would say Dragic too, but I think he's out and that's too bad. So I wish him a speedy recovery. But Jimmy also had a little um, scare twisting his ankle in game uh, going for a layup. So that'll be important to watch out for. So yeah, Bam is also out. And that's a big loss, but I think that those are two star players on Miami and they have a bright future. So their recovery is obviously very important for that team for the future. And I'm pretty confident that either AD or LeBron or both will go off in every game. But the Lakers supporting cast has been hot and cold in the bubble. They were obviously great in the in game one, but we have to look for consistency here. So that'll be another thing to watch out for. And the last thing I would say is free throws. So these are both two teams that go to the line a lot with Miami being number two in the league for attempting free throws and Lakers uh, right up there with them. So I think it'll be really important to see who goes to the line and whether Miami can get some more free throws in and not uh, foul as much on the Lakers. Of course, um, with that first game, you know, some people are starting to jump off that heat bus. You know, I have to ask you, what's your prediction? How many games you think the heat can steal? So originally my prediction for Lionels was Lakers needing at least six games. But after seeing game one and how dominant the Lakers were, I'm more optimistic about the Lakers going uh, in five or six. I obviously need to eat game two because I don't want to have recency bias to decide if the Lakers in five is still a little too optimistic. But I think Miami can get at least one game in there. 
I don't know. Being an L.A. guy, I think the brooms might be coming out if we win tonight. But going along those lines, you are a little more optimistic that the Lakers can get it done earlier. You think possibly the Celtics could have put up a bigger fight? Um, I think the simple answer is no. I think it's easy to say that the Celtics should have been up 3-1. But the truth is that we lost all of those games for a reason. We didn't keep our leads we weren't active on the glass, especially for defensive rebounds. Uh, the Celtics let Miami get way too many second chance points. We turned the ball over and we couldn't beat their zones. So I think that simply Miami was the better team on the floor and they definitely deserve to win that series, as heartbreaking as it is for us Celtics fans. Definitely. I totally understand. I can't really empathize with you, though, because I do not bleed green. I bleed purple and gold. Let's go to some other news around the league. Doc Rivers agreed to step down from his role with the Clippers and was quickly snatched up by the 76ers. Good move, bad move, winners, losers, what you got? Yeah, so I think this was definitely expected. I mean, 10 coaches around the league have been either fired or left um, so far, and seven of them being playoff teams because there were a lot of play, um, losers in the playoff run, and I think the Clippers are among one of the biggest losers because they had everything going for them. They were supposed to have a deep bench, a great coach, and Kawhi Leonard heading the team, but it just did not work, and it was just more it was more than just choking one game it was losing a 3-1 lead and to be honest their win against the Mavs in the first series wasn't super convincing either and while personally I think most of the fault is on the players because Kawhi had no help and playoff P was off um, obviously tragic um, I do understand the uh, decision to part ways with Doc because um, it happened seven years since he's been on the Clippers and he hasn't gotten the Clippers to the conference finals. So I think that I understand their decision, but the problem with the Clippers is a lot deeper than just Doc Rivers. And obviously, uh, like you said, he got picked up by the 76ers. And I think that that is actually a good choice by them. And I'm interested to see what moves he'll be making with the Sixers. Yes, yes, I totally agree. I think the Sixers, people have been picking them to make a lot of noise in the East. Now he can kind of clean up that defense. He's got Fultz shooting better. You can get Simmons shooting. It's a pretty dangerous young team with a lot of talent. We hope to see what they can do in the future. All righty. Well, Jenny, I know it was a short one this time, but so glad we could squeeze you in and have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks. All righty. Now we're taking the turn for home. We go to Owen with all things soccer. Owen, how we doing? What's up, Jared? Good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, lots of moves happening in soccer, so excited to be on. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, it was a short layoff, but it's right back in swing. Soccer never stops. You got international games. You got, you got a lot of stuff. So I'm going to start off with the news that on, is on everybody's mind. Messi and Ronaldo to face off in the group stage of the Champions League. A blessing for the fans and a curse for the players? I think it's interesting. It will obviously get hyped up because Madrid and Barca are both from Spain and you can't have two teams from the same country in the same group. So that's why Messi and Ronaldo had never had this opportunity before. But now that obviously Ronaldo plays in Italy, it's happening. I mean, it's the luck of the draw, I guess. But with UEFA, you never really know. This is a huge money-making opportunity for them. So this is probably predetermined, to be completely honest. But yeah, in a in a head-to-head record, uh, they've played each other 35 times. Messi's won 16, Ronaldo's won 10. 
They've drawn nine times. Messi scored 22 times. Ronaldo scored 19. And I think the really interesting statistic is that Messi has 12 assists, to Ren- which I suppose makes sense with Messi being on the more dominant team for the last few years. But it just kind of shows Messi having a greater impact on his team overall. I think that them playing each other in the group is going to make for fantastic TV. But if you look at the other two teams in Group G, it's Dynamo Kiev and this team from Hungary, Ferenc Sabarossi which I can barely even pronounce and have definitely never heard of before. So I don't think that it'll have too much impact on the later stages and might actually end up being a negative because the only way that they'll be able to meet again, because they'll be on opposite sides of the bracket will be in the final. But I think it'll, it'll make for interesting TV. It'll make UEFA a whole lot of money. And as the two players get into the golden years of their career, it's nice to see them face off in at least their semi prime one more time. Yes. We're all looking forward to it. Um, but I do agree with you. I do think they will both find a way to advance. Looking at other groups in the draw, United finds PSG in Group H. You know, there's Chelsea. Looks like they have a pretty clean run with Sevilla in their group. Any any group that you see specifically as the group of death? I know Group A looks pretty tough with Madrid and Bayern, even Salzburg. Yeah, I think for me, Group of Death has to either be Group D with Liverpool, Ajax, and Atalanta. I think that that's going to be a really tough group. Atalanta, um, if Joseph Illich ever decides to play again, he's going through some personal stuff and not playing at the moment. That team is filthy with Gomez as well and really just kind of like looked over. They have Zapata. They're they're so strong up front and I think could really give give Liverpool and Ajax a run for their money, especially Ajax shipping out a lot of players. Group C as well. I think that it is like Porto City and Marseille. I think that it'll be a very tough fought group. I don't know if you would consider Porto and Marseille, like group of death type material, but I think it'll be a toss up between the two of them who who qualifies along with City. And then I think United's group, Group H, PSG, United, and Leipzig, that's going to be a really tough group, especially as a United fan myself. I Leipzig lost Timo Werner, but they also didn't have Timo Werner for the Champions League restart. And obviously, you see how well they did. I think, yeah, it's just going to be tough for United. I love watching United versus PSG that game two years ago where United came back and knocked off PSG with a 97th minute penalty out of Rashford was probably one of the highlights of my life. Uh, I loved watching Ashley Young send Di Maria flying into the stands on that tackle. There's just a such an interconnectedness between the two teams and a, a rivalry that stretches down to like a very personal level where you have players like Di Maria that just like actively dislike dislike United. And then you have Ander Herrera who was shipped off from United, but has since found his form at PSG and was a complete workhorse and a great servant to the club. So it'll be interesting to see how he comes back and tries to prove himself. But I definitely don't think that you can count Leipzig out. Leipzig, one of the, one of the easier clubs to hate as well as they're basically very, a very new club, but just completely well-financed and has the money to make these big moves. So I think I think it's got to be Group H, and then the last team in that group is Istanbul, uh, Istanbul Bekasehir. So I don't think that they'll be challenging too much, but also, listen, I wouldn't put it past United to slip up and drop a point. So that would make things very, very interesting. Yes, I totally agree. Um, just you know, you don't want to see your your team in the group of death. So I was trying to put it on maybe Group A, Group C, maybe even Group B. There's a lot of parity in those two groups in B and C with Inter. Uh, Gladbach, Real Madrid, Shakhtar Donetsk, all good teams. You know, any of those teams can show up and get a 
and get a result. And like you were saying, Group C with Porto City, Marseille, and Olympiacos. Olympiacos is a great defensive team too. So it's going to be real tough to see who joins City. I think City's going to win that one easily. But Porto, Marseille, Olympiacos, I think they all could advance. But yeah, I do agree with you. I think Group H, those three teams are teams that need to be in the round of 16, and one of them just won't make it. Moving from the Champions League to the EPL, give us a quick update as to how the first few fixtures have shaped up. So we're now three weeks into the Premier League, along with the, we're now into the round of 16 of the EFL Cup as well. The two are very much connected, but so after three weeks, three fixtures, there's only three teams that remain unbeaten, and those three teams are go one, two, three, obviously at the top of the table with Leicester top right now, and then Liverpool and Everton also unbeaten. Leicester have beaten West Brom and Burnley in their first two matches and honestly did not look that impressive. But that 5-2 win against City last weekend is absolutely massive. It was a bit of a smash and grab, I think it's fair to say. Leicester only had seven shots and seven on target, which was like, I mean, if you're going to be clinical, it's good that they're getting rewarded for it. But they also had a a pretty staggering 28% possession and ended up winning by three goals. Whereas City had 16 shots, but only five found the target. They had 72% possession and 90% pass accuracy. So really, it was just a just a day where they couldn't finish their dinner more so than anything else because they had the underlying stats said that it should have been a walkover. But at the end of the day, if you if you're not clinical in front of goal, you're not going to get you're not going to get the results. And City were actually one 0 up in the match as well after the Mahrez goal in the fourth minute. But the the Vardy hat trick, two penalties, always going to be hard to beat. Leicester then did get knocked out of the EFL Cup, losing 2-0 to Arsenal. So definitely, they're at the top. I don't think that they'll stay there. I think even top four is a big push for them this year. But I mean, I've been surprised before, specifically by Leicester. Um, I mean, when they won the Premier League. But yeah, Liverpool are in second right now. Uh, they had, they've been good going forward, as everyone knows Liverpool is, but have been extremely leaky at the back. In that first game against Leeds, where they only won 4-3 against the newly promoted Leeds, I mean... Every single one of their defenders besides Andy Robertson had an absolute howler. It's a defensive vulnerability that you didn't really see from Liverpool before, so I think that'll be very interesting. I think that their reign of complete dominance is done, but obviously still title challengers. Mane and Salah have looked fantastic. And they actually have a huge game against fourth place Villa this weekend. I think, although it may not look like a huge fixture, Liverpool versus Villa, Villa have looked good, and Liverpool, while winning games, have looked kind of shaky. So I think personally, like, if they're going to fall at the first hurdle, this is going to be it. So this is going to be a big game for the team, seeing what mentality they come out with. Everton have also looked fantastic. They had a big win versus Tottenham the first week, winning 1-0. Then they beat a 10-man West Brom, 5-2. It was a really interesting match, actually. Both Kieran Gibbs and the manager, Slavin Bilic, were sent off at halftime. So from then on, Everton really ran away with it. They also beat Crystal Palace 2-1. I think for them, the midfield three two of whom they've brought in this year. I'm not sure if Decore was there before, but Thomas, um, which they brought in, uh, the Colombian midfielder that, if you remember, was prolific in the 2014 World Cup, and then Alan, the Brazilian midfielder from Napoli, alongside Decore, have just been, yeah, just been making things tick, been making things work, and Everton have always been a... Everton have always been strong up top, but Dominic Calvert-Lew in DCL has been absolutely fantastic in front of goal. He's just can't stop scoring. And even in the EFL Cup, they blew out West Ham 4-0 the other day. He had another hat trick. And with the supporting cast as well of Richarlison, I think I think Everton are 
are here to stay towards the top. I don't, I mean, obviously I don't think they're going to win the league right now. I, I think top four would be a push, but I certainly think that it's with the way some of the other clubs are performing, like stranger things have happened. And I think definitely a top six finish, which would, yeah, given the Europa league is definitely, definitely looking like a possibility for Everton. They've just been really solid. So, and then looking at the other end of the table, Sheffield have been super poor. Uh, three losses in three games. And Sheffield obviously had a great season last year, finished upper half of the table. Players like Lundstrom really came came to the forefront. Dean Henderson, the keeper who went back to United, he was there for a loan, is obviously a big loss. But sad to say, Johnny Egan, who is their Irish Irish defender, has been sent off in two competitions now for them, which is obviously a big kick in the kick in the foot. If you're trying to win games, you can't be getting players sent off that that frequently. So I think he'll be He'll be dropped soon, but I don't know if they have anyone to replace him. Wolves have also also been poor, just one win out of their first three. To be fair, they played City once, and you wouldn't expect them to win that, but they got blown out by, by West Ham, who were then blown out by Everton. So, yeah, I think their loss of Yatta to Liverpool has been huge, who Yatta came on against Arsenal, and to be fair, did not look that good. Was involved a lot, but, I mean, man could have had a hat-trick in the 20 minutes he was on and just... Eventually got a got a got a late consolation goal, but yeah, he just wasn't taking his chances. Obviously, nerves are going to be a thing, but I I don't think that he fills a role for them or fills a need for them. I should say, I think he's more there to increase squad competition, which is forty million is a lot to pay for a player to increase squad competition. And I mean, he does give them something off the bench. The Premier League's getting to the point where it's so competitive now, and teams are finally being yeah competitive on the global and European stage again. That you need squad depth to do well which is something that former big teams that aren't doing well right now, like United, Arsenal, have just struggled with. But I think uh, for this weekend, big games to watch. You have Leeds versus City tomorrow at 12.30 on Saturday. And then on Sunday, you have United-Tottenham. I think that's going to be a huge game. Two teams that are kind of struggling right now. And then Liverpool-Villa at 2.15 on Sunday as well, I believe, the late game. And Arsenal-Sheffield. Arsenal are doing okay so far. They've been winning but they've looked extremely poor while doing so. They play this kind of attempt to pass out of the back, draw the pressure in, and then play over the top. And when it works, it works fantastically. But you saw in their loss against Liverpool that it just it just wasn't working for them. And then they would play themselves into trouble and really just played into the hands of Liverpool, I think, and didn't really have a response for when it wasn't working. So I think definitely Sheffield have been poor, but they're going to be out to work hard. And if they can press Arsenal high up the pitch and press successfully as a team, which I think they've always been able to do, I think Arsenal are in for a very, very long. Thank thank you. Those are some great news, some good things to look forward to on this weekend. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the transfers, but we are going to let the folks at home look that up on the internet or get their news from the TV. I wanted to talk to you what's on, about something that's on my mind. The new FIFA is coming out real soon. How are you feeling about that one? I I've been a I've been a big FIFA fan since I was probably ten. I've had every every FIFA since FIFA '09. And this is actually the first year I'm not buying FIFA. It, it's crazy. They just, EA, the company that makes it, just keeps making the same game every year, keeps charging me 60 bucks for it and not listening to the players for what they want, for the servers that need to be fixed, for the gameplay fixes. Uh, and a long time ago, it turned into kind of a, a pay-to-win system on a lot of the game modes where you could put in real money to get certain perks for the for the gameplay. And it just turned into this big corporate mess. And it really... They just stopped listening to fans a while ago. You see a lot of the top content creators for FIFA saying the same thing. And it's just, they've lost a lot of their fan base. And I mean, when I tell you, like, if you told me five years ago that I wouldn't be buying a FIFA, I would have called you crazy. And yeah, 
this is the first year I'm just I'm just not buying it. Interesting, interesting. This is the first year I've bought it in quite a while, so I maybe I picked up your copy, but we'll let the fans at home decide for themselves. Quickly, I wanted to get uh, on to um, a little bit about social justice, diversity, just those, you know, it wouldn't be a full segment if we didn't talk about some of the pressing issues that are happening here in the world today. I know there was a big issue with uh, Colin Martin, an openly gay soccer player who experienced um, a homophobic slur. His teammates backed him up in a game that they were winning. They would have taken them to the playoffs and they uh, decided to walk off the field. What do we think about that? I want to tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, definitely. So this has been in the news recently. So he plays for San Diego in the United Soccer League, which is kind of like the, not anti-MLS, but like kind of like the anti-MLS. And so actually in their game the previous week against, I believe, LA, their manager Landon Donovan talked about a racial slur that was thrown at one of their players and how they didn't react in his opinion appropriately. Like nothing was really done. They condemned it after the game, but in the moment, nothing was done. And then you fast forward to this week where this openly gay soccer player, Colin Martin, experiences this form of homophobia with a a slur thrown at him on the field, which is, I mean, disgusting. And then he goes over to the referee and he tells the referee. And then the referee believes that he is calling the referee gay and then the referee gives him a red card and then obviously a ruckus ensues because Colin Martin's just been sent off for complaining that a homophobic slur was sent his way and so eventually the managers discuss it with the referee the referee takes back the red card Martin is allowed back in play and Landon Donovan the manager of San Diego says listen if this player is allowed to continue playing the the player that used the homophobic slur then my players aren't going to play and the manager of the other team said, I'm not taking that player off. And so the San Diego Loyal came out for the second half, took a knee for a minute, like they said that they were going to do, to stand in solidarity with the incident that happened last week, but walked off the pitch. And it was a big game for San Diego. It's not like nothing was on the line. It was a must win, make the playoff. And they were winning. They were beating one of the best teams in the league, like handily, 3-1 at halftime. And they just walked off and they decided that enough was enough. And I think a lot of people disagree with that. But I think looking at it from their perspective, they had experienced an incident of bias and they had felt wrong about the way that they handled it. They felt like they didn't treat it strongly enough and didn't make a stand. And I can't imagine how frustrated they were when they came out the next week and experienced a different form of bias. And then they just said enough's enough and took a stand. And I think it's incredible what they did. There's a great interview on their Twitter with Landon Donovan. It's like four minutes explaining why they did what they did. But yeah, I I think it's, I think it's fantastic what they did. And I think it's, it's really hard to do something like that, forfeiting your chances of the playoffs in a game that really matters. But listen, they really they really just had enough and they acted accordingly. And I think that every single person in that organization should be very proud of themselves. And I mean, that's what Landon Donovan says in an interview, that he's just never been prouder of those guys. So, yeah. Yes, great stuff. I had some stuff to add, but you definitely took the words right out of my mouth. Very eloquent there, Owen. Yes, just... It's great that um, sports can be used as a platform to really make these changes because um, these issues are bigger than just the small incidents that happen. It, it takes all of us really to, to make a change. So we'd like to end on that note. Always happy to have you with us, Owen. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. This is Jared Davis signing off for JumboCast, the podcast.